Hello, and welcome to Two Friends Talk History. My name is Ophia, and I'm a public historian fascinated by the exploration of history from researchers, practitioners, academics, and more. With so many interesting new ways to learn about the past, I'm so glad you're here joining me today on this journey. With each episode, I invite a guest to discuss an aspect of history that they are involved with or curious about, and then why it matters in a section called, So What? As a way of thanking members for their support by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash archaeoartist, I offer members only extras like additional episode content, episode art, blogs, and more, all for the cost of a pint or a flat white a month. Your support keeps this podcast going. Thank you. All right, let's get to it. Today I'm joined in person by my good friend and returning Two Friends Talk History alumna, Dr. L.K. Close. Welcome back to Two Friends Talk History. Thank you. I'm happy to be back in person in Edinburgh. Yes, it's been a hot minute since I have seen your face in person. Yes, about three years. Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, Some weird blip in the middle. I just can't put my finger on what it was, but... uh, Uh, Let's not just... It's the beast that shall not be named. Yes, yes. So a huge welcome back to the podcast and back to Edinburgh. It's been really fun. It's just two days, but it's been weird to be back and I find myself falling back into patterns it's been four years, though, since I've actually been involved with Polybius. And, and what better way to close up the weekend than talk a bit more about the man who brought you here, Polybius. Yes, that is actually <laughs> really a good description. So, Elke, you were originally from Aachen in Belgium, and you began your love of the ancient world pretty early on through studying Greek and Latin. And your passion grew while traveling in Greece and living abroad for an Erasmus year, I think it was. Yes. Yes. Whereabouts in Greece did you live? Uh, so I did my Erasmus in Thessaloniki. Amazing. Yeah, it, it's a very beautiful city. That's also where I had to speak Greek to go there. It was a whole thing because I overestimated my knowledge of Greek, <laughs> um, modern Greek that is. And then I ended up taking like a very intensive course. And there they're like, oh, maybe you should write a paper on the Hellenistic world. I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And it narrowed down and then eventually... I was like, oh, Polybius, who is this guy? So yeah, that's how the ball got rolling. So yeah. So your credentials are pretty impressive. You did your BA and your MA in Leuven, focusing on history and the ancient world. And I was lucky to have met you as listeners who've heard our last episode might recall from my master's year where we were both studying at the University of Edinburgh. And that's where you came to do your PhD in classics. Yes, I did. So uh, welcome back to Edinburgh. So, okay, you have also been growing your Hellenistic History Outreach Project very actively since completing your PhD and returning to Leuven. Um, And I want to talk about this maybe before we get going, because it's one of my big passion projects is public outreach, public engagement. And with the last episode's guest, Dr. Alex Imri, who's another huge advocate for public outreach and classical engagement with students through Latin and, and other programs he's working on. We've all kind of taken different directions to do this, but your Hellenistic History Project and website and outreach material is becoming so popular, and that is spectacular to see. So can you describe sort of the branches of how this project has grown? Yeah. So the thing is, after I got back, I ended up working in a private job for a little while, but I decided to go back into teaching, which meant that I had to do an additional master's, uh, which is crazy. Anyway, I thought, okay, I want to stay connected somehow to my research because I I did another stay in Athens for like an Onassis fellowship for about six months where I wanted to see all the places that I was doing my PhD about. So it was very interesting. I took a lot of pictures and then they're like, oh, they're just on my phone. What am I going to do with them? So I decided to start posting them on Instagram, but then it kind of grew now there are a lot of people following me. Many thousands. <laughs> Many thousands, uh, which is very nice. And I'm happy they're there. But right now you want to do so much. But mm. the main goal is to just 
give people a place where they can find random things in the world, yeah. but not limited. So I'm trying to include some other things as I'm going along about pottery or, you know, about Roman stuff and put those on the website. So I've launched a few um, appeals for guest writers. Um, there are going to be some series that people are going to contribute to the awesome website so that's kind of like the blog is one big thing the hellenistic tidbits and information trying to get within this and five years to have a few courses that people can take on the website cool. um, that you can follow aside from that also maybe try and see if there's some sort of lesson plan people can do if they're teaching about the hellenistic world that they can uh, get for free or and aside from that we've just started a hellenistic history book club which has, yeah which is we are on discord how can they find you on discord so it's basically just hellenistic history discord server uh you just have to go to the website or go to instagram and then it's one of the many links you can click we're doing four books a year I, the first one is just ending now it's robin waterfield's book about antigonus Ganatas. oh interesting it's gonna be interesting it's called the making of a king so once every four months we meet on discord and we are going to have a discussion in person and it's a really good idea to have an audio component because not everybody's going to read the book, but some people might be very curious about what historical things you guys get from it. And, and yeah. that's quite cool. So that'll be a really interesting resource. Yeah. I mean, I wanted a way to interact with people. The Discord will also be used for things like quizzes or cool. lectures and stuff like that. So it's that community. You can also just ask questions. It's a it's growing project in the long run. Yeah. So you're really dipping yeah. your toes in a lot of different waters. Yeah. I mean, it's primarily just the blog, the website, and of course, the Instagram are yeah. going to be the most important and just to see how people can interact but yeah i'm always open for any sort of collaboration and stuff so feel free to contact me the information is always the same or the address it's contact at hellenistic.history.com but aside from that it's grown a lot since the last time we talked yeah yeah, yeah no it has and i'm very interested to see how the discord server works out for you because what i'm hoping to do later on in the year and i would love to have you back for that as well is to have a round table with Dr. Emery and perhaps some of the other classical historians who do public outreach or things like that. Because I think what's very interesting about all of our different approaches is they actually complement each other in a way. And it's fascinating to see when you've got some very highly motivated people learning new technologies and new skills who are currently in, as I am, my PhD, or you guys who have just finished yours, really. There's that energy and the desire to create things. And it's just really neat to see how that's happening in different areas in the UK for us, but also in Belgium for you. So yes, we will have to meet back and talk about this more in the future. And we will obviously at the end of the episode, I'll repeat the contact details and I'll include links in the show notes. So if listeners are interested, please check it out and get in touch and check out Elke's website. So that brings us now to the, the meat of the discussion and where we're going with this today. And the last time we caught up with you on the podcast, we discussed federalism in the Hellenistic period, focusing on your favorite city-state in the ancient world and the focus of your doctorate, Megalopolis. Now, if listeners haven't heard that episode yet, please do go back. It's from series two. Dig in. It's a fascinating lesson. And while you discussed the Achaean koinon and Greek federalism, an ancient author popped up in our conversation who is just fascinating. And I thought we could talk more about him this time. That would be the ancient historian Polybius. 
Polybius is such a fascinating figure to me, and I hope that by the end of our chat, people will get just even the rough sketch of who he was and then why it's so interesting. As a figure from the Hellenistic periods, he was a statesman, a soldier, an explorer, political prisoner, and besties with Rome's golden boy, Scipio Africanus, and a historian. So that's a lot on your CV, any period of time, let alone that period of time. This fascinating figure was born around 200 BCE in Megalopolis, and his life is full of so many twists and turns that I'll be interested to hear about from you. So, uh, okay, I thought we could dig into Polybius. Who was he, and what is the social context he grew up in? So Polybius, as you already said, was born in the year 200 BC in, of course, which other city than Megalopolis. He was a statesman for Megalopolis. It was part of a very influential aristocratic family. Uh, his father was an influential Achaean statesman. His father was friends with uh, the great Philippoimen, who is considered to be one of the great Greeks. I think Plutarch described him as the last of the great Greeks who, when he died. So. Oh, la da Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, what very, was so great about him? He was a very influential military statesman, so he was okay. extremely important within the League. Aside from, if you look at the great figures of the Achaean League, you have Aratus of Sicyon, mm. who dominated the League in the earlier part of its history. And then from about 210, Philip Hoyman comes on the stage, and he becomes one of the most important figures within the Achaean League. Interesting. Um, Everything he does, it's his vision dominates the, the politics and everything yeah. and the interactions with Rome. But then he in 182, he dies. The league then goes a little bit. Uh, a little quiet. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, people trying to take his place and they're not as good or as great. But getting back to Polybius, he is part of this aristocratic family. Yeah. He also has quite a good relationship with Philip Hoyment. And so when Philip Hoyment dies in 182, Polybius is given a very important role. He's chosen to carry the funerary urn of this great Achaean statesman, oh. uh, which indicates that he has already achieved some sort of importance. After that, he becomes important in the league. He never becomes strategos, which is the highest position in the league. You're the commander-in-chief, basically. Oh, okay. What he does do is he becomes hipark, so he's the uh, commander of the cavalry. So strategos is the commander-in-chief head general, basically. And Hipparchus is like maybe one or two steps down, uh, commander of the cavalry. Yes, in mm. essence. And yeah, this was in 197, so 170 or 169. Okay. Positions are only held for a year within the Achaean League. And as you know, quite soon after, Rome defeats in 168, Rome defeats Macedon. And because the Achaeans were not supportive enough, a thousand of them were carried off to Rome. How do you mean not supportive enough? So the Romans, in their war against the king of Macedon, Perseus, the son of Philip V, Rome was looking for apparently more engagement from their Greek allies. At that time in the Achaean League, you had several political parties vying for dominance. Mm -hmm. One of them was very anti-Rome because they wanted to focus more on their own Domestic independence yeah. and they, they thought they would be more, they thought they had more freedom than the Romans thought they did. So you have this kind of clash between two different, and that's where this whole idea of local politics come in. The Greeks have a very different idea of what freedoms and what position they have in the Roman sphere of influence, whereas the Romans have this totally different idea. They're like, oh, you're our allies, you do what we say, whereas they're like, oh, you go to war with this nice king who hasn't really done anything to offend them at that point yet. Yeah. Uh, Philip V was a different story, but his son tried to mend bridges, maybe. <laughs> Basically. And so the real problem here is that these two different visions clash yeah. within the Achaean League itself and also within their attitudes to Rome. 
in the end, they um, decide to to join the war. It's a bit too late because uh, the war at that point it starts in 172 and goes until 168. They join far too late and Rome decides to punish them, right. to make an example out of them. So a thousand of the Achaeans are shipped off to Rome and Polybius is among them. So whatever promising career he had in front of him within the Achaean League is cut short at that point. Interesting. And so this thousand Achaeans who are sent to Rome, are they anybody in society or are these the sons of all the nobles or like the great, the rich? And as far as I do remember from like having a look at the material, it's mostly influential Achaeans and and this is where Polybius shows his uh, bias a little bit already because he does that a lot. His opinions about people shine through his, uh, his material <laughs> quite easily. He's sent away. But one of his political opponents gets to stay in, in Ikea and becomes the head honcho of the Ikean League. So he's so salty. Yeah, he really is. So everything this guy does afterwards, it's just negative and it's it's a bit of an issue. Interesting. Okay, well, that's a really good setup to the situation here because obviously he's our narrator for his histories. It's the one document of his that he wrote that survives to this point and it only survives in a small measure, but still a really good amount. And he wrote a lot of other things during his stay as a captive of Rome, but it sets up his perspective, I think, really well. So he's coming into this next phase of his life as highly educated, politically connected, from a good family, from a wealthy family. So he's, I mean, almost like a desirable person to have at court in Rome, like to, for any of the elite families who are seeking to make a claim to maybe the next campaign in Greece or the next campaign elsewhere, like he would be probably a pretty valuable person, I would think. Yeah. And so what happens is he is put into the household of one of the most influential figures in Roman history at that point, Scipio Africanus. And these guys are big political players in Rome's Republican period. So yeah, he and his family had made quite a name for themselves already as military generals and political statesmen within Rome. So I guess it's kind of good to ask, as much as we know, what would his position within Roman society be? Well, basically, any as you would do with any good Greek-educated man, he becomes a teacher. Put him to work. Yeah, I mean, um, it's you see this a lot, like, all of the well-known figures of the Roman elite that we have were educated somehow. And a lot of those times that slave or independent pedagogus came from Greece. Because yeah. at that time, they still had, Greece was known for culture and for all this kind of things. So when they would go to Rome, um, they would be used as tutors, as mentors for these young up-and-coming Romans. And that was no different for Polybius. So he was by far one of the most valuable hostages, I would say, that was brought to Rome from Achaea. So what happened is he became part of the Scipionic Circle, yeah. which is, you know, all of these kind of influential figures, poets, philosophers who centered themselves around um, Scipio Amelianus. And they, in essence, became actual um, clients, as yeah. you have the Roman client system of Scipio Amelianus. Interesting. In a way, he joins the the ranks of the hangers-on, yeah. who are influential as well. Yeah. And I would picture it in a way as all of these people in Scipio's orbit that he's now part of are contributing to the wealth and the fame and the glory of the person who is their patron. So that's kind of an interesting position to be in. It really is. And it allows him a lot of freedom. So a lot of the other Achaeans that went to Rome weren't as lucky as he was. Yeah. He became mentor of the eldest 
adoptive son of Scipio Africanus, Scipio Aemilianus, and he he remains on friendly terms with Scipio Aemilianus throughout his career. Um, so even after he was finished with his education, Polybius accompanied him on his many travels. I think they went to Carthage, they went to Corinth when Scipio Aemilianus conquered Carthage in 146. He went to Spain with him. It allowed Polybius to see a lot of the world, to talk to as many people as he could. And in essence, it helped him prepare his greatest work of all, his histories. Yeah. And the histories he writes aren't of his own people, but they're of the Romans. Yeah. So can you describe some of what he's trying to do with the histories? Uh, in essence, he, and he says this himself, so the histories are his longest work. It's not his only work. It's his only work that we have that has survived to this day. Yeah. He also wrote a piece on the life of Philip Poyman, which has been lost. He also wrote a theatres on different military tactics. And he also wrote a short bit on the Numantine War. Oh, right, 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 in Spain. Yeah. yeah, but that all has been lost to the ages, of course. <laughs> but his histories basically are just the history of the Mediterranean world between 264 and 146 okay. BC. And what he's trying to do in his own words is explain why a state like Rome was able to conquer that much of the known world in a time span of 53 years. That's crazy. Yeah, that must have seemed worthy of writing because it's unprecedented at the time. And so what he's trying to do is, and for people who've actually paid attention, 53 years, if you do the math, that doesn't really tally between 264 and 146. It's because he originally wanted to stop at the um, Third Macedonian War which is the reason why he came to Rome, but then realized actually it's much more interesting to continue down to 146 with the destruction of Corinth and the destruction of Carthage, marking it as a watershed moment, which for us it kind of is. But then the problem with that is Polybius's books are very fragmentary, but we'll get into that in a bit later. So he's trying to tell the story of how Rome became such a dominant force in the Mediterranean world. And he does that by interconnecting different events and as the first historian chronicling it in a sort of logical order. So mm-hmm. then this happened, then this happens. And his books are structured that way that aside from, I think, three digressions about the nature of the states, military tactics and some and geography, you have what's going on in different years in different regions. He starts by describing them separately and he then brings everything together in certain moments in time. So he synthesizes. Basically, yeah. A worldview, which is yeah. wild. That's interesting. So having worked with his material as closely as you did, what were some of the challenges with it? So there's some good things as well. So you get a very interesting point of view as to what Rome is doing. He's our only contemporary main source about the events of that period. Yeah. So he fills in a lot of the blanks. If we didn't have him, it would be very, very difficult to actually look at what's going on in the third and second century BC. How do these different states, the Hellenistic kingdoms versus Republican Rome and some other small, like the Celts and stuff, um, how do they interact and interplay and how does all that political intrigue happen so that's quite interesting his way of writing is also entertaining Uh, (laughs) yeah it's nice to read because it's very much this happens and then that happens and uh, this guy was doing this the problem number one that i'm gonna get into is he's very very subjective yeah Um, which is normal i mean if i'm telling a story i'm not gonna be as objective as i should be but the issue with his work is it's very much what he thinks and very much how he looks at the things. It's the history of individuals. Yeah. You don't really get a good sense of what does the normal 
Greek person or the normal Roman person feel or how do they look at these events. He very much wrote a political history of the big individuals. Yeah, top down. Yeah, and of the big events that are happening. So right. we know a lot about Scipio um, Africanus, Scipio Amelianus. We know a lot about Aratus. We know a lot about Philopoimen, about his dad, but we don't know much about the everyday Greek, everyday Roman. Yeah. So if you're working with Polybius' material and you want to be as comprehensive as possible, you have to look at different sources. Yeah. So you have to look at the coins that were issued. You have to look at the epigraphy, which in my opinion, it's a very interesting thing to juxtapose those two together and look at how they complement or how they contradict each other, Yeah. Uh, which is what I try to do in my thesis quite a lot because he was only one man. Yeah. And I think that when we read these authors, it's a lot of the time people forget that it's one man, one view, one way of looking at things. And he is beholden to a very powerful political family. Yeah. Whether or not they actually put boundaries on what he could write or gave him any guidelines whatsoever, we don't know and probably not. But, you know, like you have to keep certain people sweet. Yeah. Although I, I don't know if that plays that big of a role in the sense most of the writing he did was after he left when he became a little bit more independent mm. and also after he got back to Greece. Oh, okay. So the Achaean exiles stayed in Rome for 18 years. And then we're allowed to go back. But by that time, a lot of them had died because they were very old uh, yeah. Greek men. So Polybius doesn't go back. He stays in Rome. He continues mm. traveling with Scipio um, Emilianus. Doesn't sound too bad. No, I think he <laughs> quite liked Rome at a certain point. So, Which is a second thing that's intriguing when you talk about Polybius because he's a Greek yeah. writing about Rome. At first glance, it's, it's very interesting. It's a, it's a very interesting history, but you have to dig deeper. And if you dig deeper, you can see like there's all of these intrigues within the Greeks yeah. and this interplay of identity and it, it's still very much a Greek writing about Rome and about how Rome came to power and about how Rome conquered Greek and Greek-speaking people, Greek-speaking elites. So it's it offers an interesting insight and I found that when I used Polybius for my thesis it was very much trying to scope out this idea of who was Polybius and how does he look at the things, yeah. especially who was Polybius as an individual, as a statesman, and how do they look at being Achaean, yeah. being Arcadian, and being Michaelopolitan? How do these different levels of identity interplay? And that was quite interesting to look at and then look at the coins that were made and then see how does he describe um, his fellow Achaeans, which is always very positive. Because yeah. if you look at the history of the Achaean League within Polybius's work, it's very much an idealized version. And then you can see at a certain moment in time, it, it just it falls apart because it was ruled by these unruly demagogues. Yeah. He uses the word always. a lot. But you always have to keep mindful of this individual looking at things and, and describing a, a big, important player in a certain way. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Thank you. That was a great answer. So Polybius, as a writer, had a few axes to grind, it sounds like, with some of the other writers of the period. Where does Polybius's work fit into literary contributions of the time and with other writers, maybe? So what you get is you have Polybius as one of the sole surviving sources from that period. A lot of the writers like Plutarch or Livy use Polybius as a source, but of course they were living three, four centuries later. What we do have is within Polybius, there are a few Shadows. to other writers. And what I get from that, and I think the most famous one is in book 12, where he discusses uh, the work of the Greek writer Timaeus. And it's just uh, this guy, Timaeus, was another historian who wrote about the same period as Polybius said, but unfortunately we do not have any of his works. How dare he? 
Um, and Polybius is very much um, what are, what he's writing here is, is just wrong. And then he mentions this, but you shouldn't believe that because this and this and this and this. Interesting. Yeah. So he does that with a few other examples as well. But in essence, it's they are not as great of a writer as I am. So please don't put too much weight onto their the things that they write, which is interesting because Polybius and his own work. And if you look into what he's saying and try to analyze what these other people wrote and how they wrote, it's, it just gives an interesting view of, okay, what was important at the time? And what did people think was worth recording for, for posterity? Yeah. And it's just, it's a very interesting way of delving into how do people look at themselves and what do they find important to pass on to later generations? Yeah, absolutely. That's, I, I appreciate that within, it, it's almost like a really salty old school footnote you know, back in the early 20th century, the things people would write were sort of crazy and like off the cuff and would never write that now. But it kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. It's like when, where you read a paper and then it's this person wrote this and that paper and this completely wrong. And then <laughs> you read another paper by the author that was criticized. And then in a footnote, they like started checking each other. It's quite entertaining. Uh, so yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah. like academics in the margins. It's Basically funny. you've wasted many uh, a day just looking at those um, <laughs> while I was supposed to be writing. But, you know. Fair play. So you've taken us on a really interesting journey about Polybius's life. Now, how does his life conclude? So he, he decides to stay in Rome after he could potentially go home. By the time he dies, the Roman Empire has arguably grown into the beginnings of empire. What happens with him? So we know he was born around 200. He is thought to have died around 118. So at the age of 82. And there's this uncertain source, we call him Pseudo-Lucian. So, you know, yeah. when every time there's a pseudo, it's very much, yeah. is this really a good source? Anyway, who tells us that he died because he fell off a horse at the age of 82. I mean, he's yeah. a good age. Um, yeah. But so by that time in 118 BC, Rome had firmly established its control over Greece as well. Yeah, It wasn't an official province yet. But it was part of the fear of influence, we should say. Yeah. So about 30 years before in 150, the Achaeans were allowed to go back to Rome, as I've already said. Polybius decides not to go back immediately. He prefers going traveling with his protege, ends up being present at the sack of Carthage in 146. As soon as he heard that there were troubles within the Achaean League, he was too late because by that time, the Romans, in a matter of a week or about 10 days, they conquered the entirety of Greece due to the abysmal state of the Achaean organization, the Achaean League and the Greeks in general, because they didn't really think that Rome would attack them. They've been uh, enjoying this. protectorate. <laughs> they've been enjoying this like strained relationship for many years. It's like, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. The, the wolf was there at that time. The wolf yeah. came and the wolf conquered. But Polybius then decides to return to Greece after 146, after the sack of Corinth, and um, decides to actually try and help the Greeks adjust to Roman rule. Um, he even mentions it in his own work, where he uh, then says that he actually helped the Greeks preserve some of the images that were in Corinth, and he convinced the Romans not to attack and blah, 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 blah. Interesting. It's interesting because he obviously had some respect for the Roman machine, but when it came down to it, he used whatever political leverage he had to protect the sacred relics and the... Because, I mean, Corinth was sacked pretty brutally. And yeah. that's when, that, this is the period when the huge amount of Greek material culture enters Rome and the conquest of these Greek cities. 
and he's probably pretty aware of what's going to happen to all of these things. So it's, it's probably pretty good that he was there to try and help and mitigate some of that and leaning on any influence he could have, which is beneficial. I would hope it. Yeah. I mean, especially because I think it was the statue of in Megalopolis, it was the statue of Philip Poyman that he was protecting. Of course. Or something like that. And later on, I think it's Pausanias who mentions a statue to Polybius or so there is kind of like this gratitude for him for helping protect him and like helping the Romans not become too inquisitive of their yeah, belongings. Like, this is ours or we're going <laughs> to destroy everything. You guys <laughs> didn't help us enough, blah, blah, blah. Because that basically was what happened. And yeah, then we don't really know what happens afterwards. Because as I said before, he originally planned to write until 168 and then decided to include yeah. the last 20 years, which for me were the most interesting. But unfortunately, those are very fragmentary. Okay. So a lot of like, I think the last six books of Philippus's work are surviving in very, very fragmentary conditions. So especially the book 40, where he describes what happens after and then the sack and stuff, it's almost all gone. Oh, that's a shame. That'd be very interesting to read. Yeah, which is another one of the problems that I wish we had more because his histories were divided into 40 books. And the first 12 are pretty intact. Yeah. And then it slowly started becoming thinner yeah, and thinner yeah, yeah. and thinner oh that's a shame it's the, isn't that the old chestnut of ancient history it like really is. i wish there was more information yeah <laughs> so that's fascinating and thank you so much okay this really has shown quite a useful light onto this one individual and you've highlighted some of the interesting aspects of his identity and his personality and his experience seems quite unique i think for i mean almost anyone especially then it's the part of the episode where I ask, so what? There's a few things I can think of, but why do you think this is such an interesting topic for people to know about? Or why do you think people should care? Um, Because that's a valid, very valid question. I asked myself that a lot of the time when I was using the histories for my thesis. It's, It's because he's one individual who combines both Greece and Rome. And you don't get that very often in ancient historiography. You have it with Plutarch, yeah. with Pausanias, who's a Greek author in the Roman period writing about Greece. So you get these kind of like interplays, but with Polybius having lived both within Rome and Greece for a long time, he has this interesting way of looking at things and combining things, which is actually also what he's trying to do with his work. The whole idea of simploke is interconnectedness and looking at the way that these events in the period he's writing about are interwoven with each other to reveal a history of the world is something that's unique and I think very novel for that period. Aside from that, he is our only contemporary source (laughs) for that period. So very, very important. But it's just interesting to me. I looked at him from a very Greek point of view. I know a lot of people know him as a historian who wrote about the history of Rome. So what I haven't done and what I don't know much about is the events of the Roman wars and all of these adventures with Scipio Amelianus and stuff like this. So that is quite interesting as well to, to dive more into and see how does this Greek person look at Rome and then look at the way Rome interacts. Because there's also, um, I'd mentioned that he did several digressions. Yeah. Uh, his sixth book is basically on the ideal constitution. Interesting. And of course, what is the ideal constitution? It's not the Achilles. It's not... Carthage it is Rome because Rome is a combination of uh, all of the different constitution types uh, smushed together smushed together which is an interesting thing to look at if you're interested in like political theory and Polybius and the way he looks at the ideal constitution was a source of inspiration for people like Machiavelli or Montesquieu who were thinking about what should the ideal state be yeah um it's also why 
he's referenced in the um, federalism papers, I think, yeah. which is quite interesting to see that he has had a, quite a huge impact in many different ways. So not only as a historian, not only as someone who has access on Roman history at that point from a different point of view, because we have plenty of Roman historians who write about Rome yeah. in the Republican period. But this is a Greek guy going to Rome, writing about how Rome is so big. Mm -hmm. But that's just not the only thing he does. He yeah. also looks at the Greeks and the Hellenistic kingdoms and the way that those interact with one another. There are quite a few problems with using his material as source material. But as any good historian or any good classicist is aware, you take these kind of things with a pinch of salt. If, for example, Ptolemy and um, Antiochus the Great were actually plotting uh, together to lure Philip V into a war. I found that information elsewhere, but sometimes Philippius just also kind of mentions things that you can't find anywhere. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. So what you're saying is sort of that the long-term implications of Polybius's work isn't just as a report, like reportage of a post-war Greek who's living in Rome among the conquerors. It's So he's got this really interesting perspective and identity in the end his work has influenced the lives of modern americans it is part of his work that influenced aspects of american constitutional thinking that's crazy and awesome in a way because you know when when you ask somebody so what why does it matter very rarely does it actually have these larger implications so that's quite cool um as you've described in a lot of ways he has that unique perspective of being of straddling two cultures and living through some of the most important moments that defined where Rome was going from where they had come from. Fascinating, really interesting person to talk about. He really is. I just, and the fact is, I love reading through it and looking at the details. And I love it when he's annoyed with people. So it's really interesting to see. I mentioned the guy that got him banished to Rome. Yeah. To see that no one, in a certain moment in time, he mentions that no one within the Achaean League wanted to share the same bath as this guy because oh. he, has such a bad smell so, <laughs> i mean it's just so um, just salt <laughs> yeah which is nice He's i think a shady queen yeah i like people being bitchy nice and being <laughs> able to read about it two thousand years later right people haven't changed no. um brilliant well it's been such a delight catching up with you about this and getting to sit down and talk in person about polybius just what a different world than our last chat really so, this has been a delight and Listeners, if you've enjoyed our show today, please go check out HellenisticHistory.com to look at recent publications LK has been working on and the collaborative guest blogging from some of her contributors. Also check out the Discord book club that she's starting. Sounds fabulous. And there's, of course, the visual element of Hellenistic Histories that she runs the social media for Instagram. And you can just find it by typing in Hellenistic History. Uh, as well as drawing ancient history if you want some of the illustration work she's done and you can find examples of, that you can expect to see in the coloring books and things later on so okay it has been an absolute delight seeing you and having you here today thank you so much for joining me on two friends talk history you're very welcome it was very nice to be back and fall back into old patterns absolutely including polybius wonderful thank you again lk for joining us today if you have not already done so please rate and review two friends talk history on apple podcast it takes just a second and helps people find the show don't forget to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen on so you never miss an episode 
You can also follow the show on Instagram at Two Friends Talk History or my website, www.archaeoartist.com for more explorations of art, history, and the ancient world. I have launched merch on my Redbubble site where you can find swag from topics covered on the episodes. See you soon with new friends on Two Friends.